Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. I'm Kira McGee, and in this episode, we go back to 1899, the third season of the VFL, where Fitzroy attempt to follow up their 1898 premiership, and, as the end of the 19th century approached, there was much happening around the world, in Australia and in Melbourne, on sports fields of various codes, and on a wider political and historical stage. Before we get into the 1899 season and the finals, let's have a look at some of the rule changes. The big news from the VFL was the number of players was to be reduced from 20 on the field to 18, with the reduction of two followers. The intent was to open the game up, with many commentators calling out the advantage of having players stay in their set positions and only having three men following the ball over the ground. The VFA had made the change two years earlier, and this was seen as a positive innovation. The VFL also made it clear that it would decide the venue for the final match, or matches, to avoid a repeat of the confusion and disquiet caused by Essendon's initial refusal to play the 1898 final at the Junction Oval. There are going to be many, many rule changes in the years ahead. In 1898, an English rugby team was touring Australia. They arrived by ship docking in Melbourne in June, and before they caught the train to Sydney, they were welcomed at Parliament House and then at the Melbourne Town Hall. Several members of the VFL were part of the welcoming team, and there was also a reception held at the Port Phillip Hotel, the venue the VFL used for their regular meetings. A couple of highlights from the speeches at the Town Hall are worth sharing. The Reverend Mr Molyneux, who was the captain of the English team, spoke on the issue of player payments, where he made it clear that this was not on, saying, For men to want to be paid for playing a game that only lasted a few hours was absurd. Not sure our current sportsmen would agree. What got more attention at the time were the observations by the Melbourne Lord Mayor in his official welcoming speech, decrying the appalling behaviour of spectators at local football games and the need to keep gambling out of the game. Needless to say, these comments did not go down well with the VFL representatives or the local sports journalists. At the VFL reception for the rugby team, Mr Beasley, the Vice-Chair of the VFL and Member of Parliament, regretted the Mayor's comments. He said that he had never seen a bookmaker at a football game. The local media the next day referred to the grovelling Mayor. But here we are, 120 years on, and gambling is clearly intertwined with the modern game. On other football news, 1899 saw the SANFL award the inaugural Margaret Medal for the fairest and most brilliant player to Norwood's Albert Green. It would be another 25 years before the VFL established the Brownlow Medal. And on a political front, the work of Federation continued. Following successful referendums in 1898 in Victoria, South Australia, Tasmania and New South Wales, after a second referendum there, the process had stalled. An urgent Premier's conference in February managed to keep the momentum going again. More referendums were successfully held in June in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania. More work would be required in 1900, including a referendum in Western Australia before we could unite as a single country. Something we take for granted now, but an initiative that required significant efforts of persuasion, compromise and vision to achieve. An effort that seems somewhat underestimated and forgotten today. But back to the football. On the first Saturday in May, in accordance with a time-honoured custom, football pushes its gentler brother, Cricket, from the field, and to the accompanying joyous shouts of thousands of votaries, starts its account for the year. 
Happily, today, the outlook for the king of winter games is promising in the extreme. The split, which two seasons back both sundered the league and association, and which was feared would bring disaster to one, if not both bodies, and tend to ruin football, has, I'm delighted, to date been productive of the greatest good all round. So wrote Markwell in the Australasian in his preview of both the VFA and the VFL. He was pleased with the state of the game and the benefit of the recent rule changes that had improved the game in opening up the play. He congratulated the league on following the VFA's initiative in reducing the number of players to 18 and encouraged captains to ensure their players stayed in position. Place play, to use the terminology of the time. In an observation that has taken on the quality of prophecy given how the modern game has evolved, he wrote, The laws cannot prevent captains from sending half the 18 at once into the ruck and making the game a general scramble. Let us hope, however, that no controller of a team would be found so lacking in judgment as to adopt this principle and an unscientific plan of campaign. Perhaps Markwell would be surprised and disappointed to see how the game has evolved. The season opened with a grand final replay where Fitzroy took on Essendon, the same odds, at the Brunswick Street Oval and the result was another win for Fitzroy. It was the start of a strong season for the Maroons who would only lose three times in the first round of 14 home and away games as they topped the ladder claiming the minor premiership and the all-important right to challenge for the major premiership if required. There were a number of highlights, innovations and drama across the 1899 season. On the Queen's birthday holiday, Wednesday, May 24th, the VFL held a round of football. The fact that it was a holiday meant that the VFL could trial a morning game. Most footballers and spectators worked on Saturday mornings, so games did not start until 3pm, or later if the train was delayed. On the Queen's birthday holiday, Collingwood hosted St Kilda for an 11am start. The change of time did not change the outcome for St Kilda. They lost, again, on their way to another winless season. The remainder of the games in that round started at 3pm. The next round was the following Saturday. No concerns about three-day turnarounds back then. On the 10th of June, Collingwood hosted Fitzroy at Victoria Park. Last episode, we discussed the fierce rivalry between these two neighbouring suburbs. On this occasion, the game became a bit more spiteful than usual, and Collingwood's rover Dick Condon was hit in an incident that was not reported. Fitzroy won the game by four goals, but the local supporters let their feelings be known by smashing the windows of the cab carrying some of the Fitzroy players home. The Collingwood City Councillor, Mr Cody, said, The Roys had provoked the attack by their gross misconduct on the field. No love lost between these team and their supporters. An unusual incident occurred a couple of weeks later. Many supporters have tried to get a message to umpires over the years, but on July 15th, the Fitzroy-Geelong game, there was a unique effort. A telegram boy entered the field of play and dodged around the players, chasing down umpire Ivo Krat. Sadly, it was all a misunderstanding. The telegram was for another famous umpire, JJ Trait, who was not umpiring this game. It makes you wonder, would a telegram be more effective than yelling at the umpire? The VFL had continued with the same final systems as 1898, where, after the completion of the 14 home and away games... The eight teams were split into two sections, 1st, 3rd, 5th and 7th in Section A and in the remainder in Section B. Each section would play three rounds and the teams on top of the sectional ladders would play off for the Premiership. And, as was the case in the last season, the minor Premiers, this time Fitzroy, 
would have the right to challenge if they did not win the Premiership on their first attempt, so long, of course, as they had won at least two of their sectional games. This clause being added to stop a club resting all of the best players in the sectional rounds in preparation for the challenge. The supporters of this scheme pointed to the fact that it kept the season going for longer and maintained interest in who would be the Premiers all the way up to the final game. If the Premiership was awarded to whoever finished on top of the ladder, this might be decided weeks before the season was over and interest would wane. Critics pointed out that a team who won no games in the regular season, like St Kilda, could still win a series of games at the end of the season and become Premiers, even though the other sides had shown their superiority across the entire season. The VFL liked the system because it meant more games, which raised more revenue. The first round of the sectional games saw, in Section A, Fitzroy defeat Carlton as expected. Carlton had only won three games all season, two against St Kilda and one against South Melbourne. Remember that win, Carlton fans. And Collingwood beat Melbourne. In Section B, Essendon had an easy win by 98 points against St Kilda. It wasn't going to get better for St Kilda during this series. In the other game, there was a surprise upset. Geelong had finished second on the ladder with 10 wins and were hosting South Melbourne, who had only 5 wins and finished 6th. Despite the home ground advantage of the Corio Oval, the Pivotonians were run over in the last quarter when they could only score 5 points to South. Two goals won behind, and South won the game 6 goals 5, 41, to Geelong's 5 goals 8, 38. The following Saturday was the second round of the sectional games, and in Group A, Collingwood and Fitzroy remained undefeated. Collingwood had another strong game, easily beating Carlton, and Fitzroy dominated Melbourne, who could only manage two behinds for the entire game. St Kilda would take some of the embarrassment away from Melbourne in the following week. In Section B, South had their second win, as expected, over St Kilda, and Geelong managed to win away from home by defeating Essendon by eight points at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground. This brought us to the critical third week of the sectionals. The fierce rivals, Collingwood and Fitzroy, were battling to top Section A, and Geelong needed a percentage-boosting win over St Kilda and hoped that Essendon could beat South Melbourne. Essendon had won nine games for the season and South had only won five, losing to Essendon twice. Reasons for Geelong to be somewhat confident. A huge crowd was at Victoria Park to see the two undefeated teams in Section A. Whoever won this game was going to play off the Premiership, albeit Fitzroy already had the insurance of a challenge in its pocket, having won two of its sectional games. But we know when these rivals met, they always wanted to beat each other. The game started badly for Collingwood when they lost Matthew Fell to injury. One of the best utility players of his era, he wrenched his back and had to be carried off. With no substitutes or interchange, Collingwood continued with 17 players, and this was to be a factor in their 14-point defeat. The fans let Fitzroy know their feelings. Pat Hickey, a rough, tough half-backman, was set upon by a woman who belted him with her umbrella. The police had to escort Fitzroy players to their tram past at least 150 Collingwood supporters. Some may say larrikins. Reading about crowd behaviour in the 19th century games is a useful reminder on how well-behaved modern crowds are, despite the outrage generated by isolated incidents that are now captured on smartphones and broadcast to a scandal-hungry public across social media and mainstream media. Which is not to dismiss those incidents, but we should not think that there was a golden age where all supporters behaved themselves all of the time. So Fitzroy was through to the final. But what was happening in the Section B? Could Geelong get the cards to align? They did their best. 
by inflicting the mother of all thrashings on St Kilda to boost their percentage. This was the last game of St Kilda's third season, and they still did not have a win. On this Saturday, however, they could only score one solitary point. It was the first score of the game, but then the Pivotonians took control by kicking the then-league record of 23 goals, 24 behinds, 162 points, to win by a record margin of 161 points. St Kilda still hold the record for the lowest score in a VFL-AFL game. Could Essendon do the right thing and beat the lowly South Melbourne for the third time in the season? Essendon did take the lead in the first quarter by kicking one goal to South's one point. But whether it was a home ground advantage at the Lakeside Oval or the late season momentum that the Bloods had built up, they went on to win the game, three goals ten to two goals one. South Melbourne had taken advantage of the sectional system to finish undefeated despite being sixth on the ladder, ahead of only the lowly St Kilda and Carlton. And even Carlton had defeated them. But all that mattered now was the opportunity for South to continue on to the Premiership, even though they would have to defeat Fitzroy twice to claim it. The final was scheduled for September 16, 1899. If you checked the newspapers on that morning of the game, you would have seen news about the infamous Dreyfus case with the French government dropping its prosecution. And also, the situation with the Boers in South Africa was approaching crisis point, where it was reported, quote, Boer executive has warned for the burghers to be in instant readiness to obey a call to arms, unquote. The upcoming Boer War would have a sad impact on Australia and a number of players in the VFL. The VFL chose the Junction Oval again for the 1899 final. Their decision was driven by the fact that the St Kilda Cricket Club would only take 10% of the gate, while the more centrally located East Melbourne Cricket Ground wanted a 15% cut. In a preview of later arguments about the location of the grand final and the revenue share between the hosts and the VFL, Markwell of the Australasian wrote, One might have expected that the consideration for the convenience of the football-loving public would have carried greater weight than the raking in of a few extra dollars. We will see this debate raised again in the years to come. In this era, the captains also acted as a coach and club leader. Fitzroy was again captained by the talented Alex Sloan, who, as well as his rowing talents, discussed in the last episode, missed a game in 1897 because he was cycling to South Australia. A true, multi-talented sportsman. South Melbourne's captain was David Bud Adamson, described as an energetic follower, although in this final he played at full-back. He would also captain Victoria in 1901. The umpire for this game was again the highly esteemed Ivo Crap. In the season reviews for 1899, there was much criticism of the standard of the umpires, including the unwillingness to report players for rough play and failing to control the game. The one man accepted from this criticism was Ivo Crap, who could name all the players and was always willing to explain his decision. The weather for the final was appalling, with rain washing across the city. South Melbourne wanted to postpone the game due to the poor conditions, but Fitzroy was not agreeable. They may have been aware that the Bloods had some injuries, as well as a couple of players that had to rush back from planned holidays. Clearly, those players did not expect South to be in the grand final. Fitzroy had their own challenges. Bert Sharp, the centre-half forward in the Fitzroy Premiership team the previous season, withdrew because his father died the night before the game. The team wore black armbands in tribute. Another change was required for a more unusual reason. Chris Keenan, Fitzroy's talented goalscorer, failed to arrive to the ground. 
It is not clear why. Possibly an injury, but the player, described as a maverick by some, would continue to play for the club and would be one of the best players in season 1900. His place on the day was taken by veteran Bill Cleary. One of the more notable players for South Melbourne in the 1899 season and in this grand final was a young, slim, half-back flanker, Warwick Armstrong, who would make a far more significant impact as the captain of Australia's cricket team and be forever known as the big ship. He put on more weight as he moved past his football-playing days. About 4,800 spectators with umbrellas and overcoats had made their way to the less-than-convenient Junction Oval in spite of the rain. This included a contingent from Geelong who'd come up by special train. Although well down on the 16,000 that watched the previous year's grand final, they would be treated to a thrilling and close game as Fitzroy aimed to be the first VFL team to go back-to-back and South wanted to force the finals into one more week given that Fitzroy had the challenge if required. As the players came out, it was raining steadily and the wind was blowing from the Elwood end, which made the city goal the best to kick to. South Melbourne won the toss and had the wind in the first quarter. The first goal came from a free kick to South Melbourne's Harold Lamp. Two men behind the goals with a red and white umbrella waved them for some time. Lamp scored again with a running goal. Jim Grace for Fitzroy had a snap against the wind, but could only score a point. There would be only be four points scored against the wind all day. Fitzroy, the dominant team for the season, was fumbling and South were pushing forward. At quarter time, it was two goals, three, 15 for South to Fitzroy's one point against the wind. The second quarter was Fitzroy's turn to kick to the scoring end. South's captain, anticipating tactics used today, moved half forward Harley James to be an extra man in the back line. Even so, South had the first attempt at goal but were repelled by halfback Jim Dees. Fitzroy thought they had their all-important first goal when McDougal kicked the ball off the ground through the big sticks. South Melbourne's captain, Adamson, pointed to a muddy mark on the arm of his jumper, and umpire Crap agreed the ball was touched. Only a point to Fitzroy. South were kicking the ball out of bounds to hold the game up. If they did move foot forward, Hickey, in the back line for Fitzroy, was irresistible. Mick Grace then used a long punt to get the Maroons' first goal after a couple more behinds had been scored. Then Mick Grace was able again was able to pass the ball to Fontaine, who punted Fitzroy's second goal. South were not able to score against the wind, and at half-time, Fitzroy led by one point, two goals four to two goals three. The third quarter meant South had the advantage of the wind. They kicked three behinds in a row to take the lead. It was a pressure-packed quarter. Coglin from South was looking to step for goal, but was pushed in the back and awarded a free kick. He then took full advantage to kick South's first and only goal for the quarter. They were drawing away in a low-scoring game. Fitzroy kept pushing up against the wind, and Clark and McDougall managed to score a behind each. Just as the quarter was ending, the rain returned and South picked up one more behind. The third quarter bell rang across the ground. South had got the only goal for the quarter, but Fitzroy had at least managed to pick up two points. South led three goals seven to two goals six. Could Fitzroy bridge the seven-point gap? Could South hold off the reigning premiers as the wind got stronger? Early in the last quarter, Hickey, who had done great work on Fitzroy's back line, had a shot at goal but hit the post. The ball moved forward and back. South continued to kick the ball out of bounds, but umpire Crap was not going to allow that to continue unpunished. After a couple of obvious attempts... 
Free kicks were awarded for deliberate out-of-bounds. The game would be played on the field. South's Lamp had a long shot to add to his two goals, but it was intercepted by the dominant Hickey in Fitzroy's back line. The ball was kicked to the forward line and McSpearin marked on the behind post. Before South realised what had happened, the Fitzroy Rover had whipped around in front and with a beautiful shot at the goal, put Fitzroy ahead by a point. Fontaine scored another point for Fitzroy to build the gap to two points. South made another push forward in an attempt to score against the win and get the lead back. Lamp had a shot and the ball went through the big sticks. The crowd yelled and some South players turned somersaults but they were celebrating too soon. Mick Grace, on the mark, had managed to touch the ball, which meant that it was only a behind, and a one-point lead to Fitzroy. But there was still time for another push forward. Lamp took another grand high mark, better than the ones that he had taken earlier in the quarter, but this kick lacked power and could not even score a behind to tie the game. Sloan marked the ball and repelled it once more, South were pushing forward again when the bell finally rang to end the game and confirmed that Fitzroy had become the Premiers by the narrowest of margins. Three goals, nine, twenty-seven, to South, three goals, eight, twenty-six. Despite the conditions, it was declared a magnificent final and Hickey was considered the best on ground and acclaimed champion player of the colony. Fitzroy were deemed worthy Premiers, winning the final and finishing on top of the ladder after the home and away rounds. The season reviews in several papers contained many criticisms of a system that allowed a team that finished sixth to get so close to being premiers. But, as mentioned earlier, this system did allow for all the teams to have a longer season and the spectators were coming to the finals in big numbers. The other main criticism of the season focused on the umpires and their inaction in reporting players for rough play. But soon, football was forgotten as war was declared in South Africa on October 10, 1899. Join me next time as we explore season 1900 and see if Fitzroy can manage a hat-trick of premierships. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts from. It will help others to find it. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au and check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or our Facebook page and Twitter accounts. Thanks, and I hope you join me next time.